I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. As public cloud adoption continues to accelerate, security becomes a top priority for many organizations. Maya Kacharovsky, product manager at Google Container Security, explained what security consisted of in legacy systems. We then talked about the security panorama in the cloud, specifically in containerized applications. Maya explained various security risks in these applications as well as solutions. One of these is GVisor, a new open source sandbox that provides secure isolation for containers. I'm here at KubeCon in Copenhagen with Maya Kaczorowski, product manager at Google Container Security. Maya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We're going to be talking about container security today. First, I want to get a quick overview. Before Google Cloud existed and AWS, what did IT security consist of at a high level? Sure. So if you were doing security on-prem, and a lot of companies still do this, right? You have a fairly traditional security model. Um, you might have a firewall that protects your entire network, kind of a network perimeter idea. And on the inside, you have a bunch of services and applications and things, virtual mm -hmm. machines, servers, whatever it happens to be, that talk to each other. The old security model, the old way of thinking about things before microservices is that you have a strong security boundary, a strong perimeter, like a moat or a wall around a castle. And on the inside, everything is Can, can talk to everything else. Everything is trusted. So once you're in, you're good, right? Think about an egg with a shell and you break in, it's all gooey and mushy on the inside. Okay. <laughs> right? The new security model of microservices and containers is rather that each individual container is its own service or each, each individual service is its own thing and it doesn't have to trust anything else, right? It can entirely independently, you can have different security controls than anything else. Mm -hmm. And that's, one part of that is what we call beyond corp at Google, which is how users authenticate internally. And one part of that is how services talk to each other, which is things like Istio, which is a service mesh that lets two services talk to each other in an authenticated way. Mm -hmm. And what you said is each container, it's on its own. And is this one of the security approaches that has been driven by the cloud? I think the cloud makes it way easier for developers and security professionals to change how they think about security. So before you had to buy boxes, you'd buy a physical box that would be a firewall that you would put, you know, plug in okay. and you had, you know, your NOC and your SOC, which is your network operation center and your security operation center. And you bought a bunch of hardware that did one function that you plugged in. With the advent of virtual machines and now containers, you can have much more flexibility as to what you want to deploy in your environment. Mm -hmm. So today you want to deploy that thing in a, in a VM, great. Tomorrow you want to move it to a microservice and then have an application level firewall, great. It's a couple of mouse clicks away and mm -hmm. you can deploy new security models in your infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And in terms of security, what are some of the differences between the VMs and the container? Something yeah, that stands out. That's a great question. And I think people think that they're very, very different. And the reality is they're slightly different. So a container would have, the first thing I'll point out is lifetime. So a container has a much shorter lifetime than a VM. It's meant to be immutable. So if you want to change anything in a container, you're meant to redeploy it and kill the old container rather than just patch something that's already running, which is what a VM does. From a security point of view, that's interesting because it means you should be able to patch your applications much more quickly and while they're running. It also means that if an attacker is in your environment, they shouldn't be able to persist as long. The downside of that compared to something like a VM is if an incident does happen, by the time the incident's over, 
you might not have any forensics anymore because the container might have died. The other major difference I would point out between containers and VMs is the kind of security, like a surface area, let's say. So a container runs on a smaller host OS and then a container runtime on top of that, on which you're running your containers. Yeah. The host OS is much smaller because it doesn't need as many binaries and libraries as it would if you were running full-featured VMs. The benefit of that is that obviously there's a lot less things you have to worry about patching, a lot fewer areas where you might have vulnerabilities compared to a VM. The downside is that there aren't necessarily strong isolation boundaries in containers, right? We rely on the isolation of a hypervisor in a virtual machine, which doesn't exist in containers. And I say that kind of lightly because uh, Google actually open sourced what we use internally yesterday um, called Gvisor, mm -hmm. which is how we actually do isolate workloads at the container level. Yes, I did see that. And I guess we can talk about that now since you brought it up. <laughs> what I saw is, is this sandbox environment, right? Can you explain a bit what this means, the fact that sure. we're in a sandbox? So a traditional hypervisor would segment each application running on top of in a VM in such a way that they talk directly to the kernel, uh, they sorry, they talk to a guest kernel and then talk to the kernel so that they don't affect each other, right? They don't have to, one application shouldn't be able to escape from how it's isolated and affect another application. Typically we talk about this as a kernel escape, right? The thing talks to the kernel, it gets out of the kernel and affects another application. In containers, this isn't the case because containers will share a kernel, right? And they share an OS. Yes. So in theory, that you can't have the same level of isolation. What Gvisor does is a container isolation runtime, which basically lets you have what looks a lot like a guest kernel operate in user space. Would you say we're sort of simulating a VM, but not fully a VM? I'd say we're simulating a hypervisor, not oh, a VM. Oh, hypervisor. Yeah, just the hypervisor part of it. Okay. And what is the motivation of doing that? For example, what are security threats we can have if, if we don't have this? Yeah, you might think about um, running untrusted code in a container. So when I mean untrusted code, it's really an array of things. It could be things that you know are bad, like you might be doing a malware analysis or something like that, reverse engineering, and you want to be able to put it in a sandbox, a true sandbox, and test it and see what's happening without it escaping. Um, the other end of untrusted code is just code that you haven't reviewed yourself. Maybe it's code from an open source tool that maybe used to have vulnerabilities or you're not familiar with or whatever it happens to be that you're unsure about deploying alongside, you know, your really trusted payments application in your environment. And so what a sandbox provides is just a way for you to run that code in a way so that you have a stronger guarantee about how, whether or not it can escape that environment and touch, affect other applications you have running. I see. So because like you mentioned earlier, containers are running on the same OS. Correct. And before that, if you're using an open source library, you have to deploy it to that main OS and then a bunch of containers are affected because they're in that same OS. But with this, you can be like, oh, I'll just try it with certain containers only of the application. For example, yeah. So okay. rather than having to rely, what somebody would have done before is say, I'm going to run each individual application on a different VM or maybe in a different container you know, on different VMs. Now you can say, okay, I can run these things in different containers on the same VM. Okay. Is that the main reason why we need this hypervisor? Isolation and security boundaries of code. Okay. Is that just also for testing purposes? Like if you want to test, you know, a library and see if, how it would behave? Sure, you could do that as well. I mean, I think anything untrusted. So if you don't trust that library, you might want to deploy it in something like that environment, for sure. Okay. And I'm really curious, because I saw you tweet the other day. <laughs> I spent so, too much time so, on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was something that said, my job is to make security people 
care about containers or some yeah. Viva. I, I put some swear words in yeah, there. Yeah, I put but some yes. swear words there. <laughs> so I'm really curious, how are they perceived by you know the general security sure. community? I think we have a situation now where Kubernetes being so popular and having you know KubeCon being as big as it is when, while we're here today in Copenhagen. The reality is a lot of container people care about container security. They're aware that they need to make the thing secure and it needs to run a certain way and et cetera, et cetera. Or their security team tells them that they need to care about security. I'm not finding yet that security people understand containers. And so they're coming at it from a completely different background. You know, they're used to, to working with infrastructure, application security, VM security, whatever it happens to be. And they've never played with Kubernetes. And they have, they have um, not independently going and looking for it. The first time they touch Kubernetes is when somebody in their organization deploys it somewhere, and now it's their job to secure it. Or their manager's manager tells them, you have to deploy Kubernetes, make sure it's secure, right? I see. And like you said earlier, they can also be used to just putting bare metal in the middle. Exactly. So it's more about them not really understanding containers or how to make them secure. Yes. We have a lot of experts in containers. We have a lot of experts in security and very few experts in container security. I see. And I think the container community is doing a great job getting people interested. I would like security people to also get more interested in mm -hmm. containers. Mm -hmm. Do you see that slowly happening? I think naturally it's happening because they have to. They have to. <laughs> yeah, because Kubernetes is becoming very popular. Exactly. Okay. I want to talk now about security approaches. I came across one article that you wrote, and in this article you said there's two common security decisions companies take. One of them is about defining the perimeter. Can you talk a little bit about what this means? Sure. So you're referring to, um, we had a publication that was written by uh, McKinsey on the cost of moving to the cloud for security. Yes, um, exactly. And, they, and, they, and these are the conclusions they came up with. The first one you're asking here around deciding what the perimeter is. It goes back to that old security model we were talking about before. Before, you had only one perimeter and it went around the whole thing. And you said, okay, I'm going to protect everything the same way. And I put one big moat around everything. The new model now is, okay, I'm going to segment everything. It's what we call network segmentation. Or the new trendy thing, micro-segmentation. I'm going to micro-segment my applications in such a way that each of them are, are protected differentially. And the real idea here is that the things that are extra important and extra sensitive, I'm going to protect more. And the things that are less important, I'm going to protect less. But I'm going to spend my you know, security dollars in a way that it makes sense based on those applications. Okay. What are some of the things that could matter less or more? Sure. So for example, at Google, the most critical data that we have is customer data, right? Or user data, I should say. So anything that touches user data is protected much, much higher than, say, things that touch, I don't know, internal documents. Right? Mm -hmm. That's less critical to us than user data. Mm -hmm. So this approach is, if I understand it correctly, just observe your company and the things that you're doing and identify these areas. Correct. Okay. So you could look at the types of data that things are touching. Um, you could look at the systems that you're looking at. The, the model that Google employs is something called BeyondCorp, which we introduced six or seven years ago through a couple of white papers. And the idea of BeyondCorp is to allow you access to applications dynamically. This is for users, not other applications. Allow users to access applications dynamically based on like a risk score. So if I'm logging in from the Google office and connecting to my email and I'm on a work laptop, which has a certificate on it and a few other things, great, you know, you're Maya, please come on right in, you know, look at your email. Mm -hmm. I'm connecting from home and I'm connecting from my personal computer or maybe I'm traveling, you know, in a coffee shop in Sweden or something like that and I'm trying to access my salary information. Oh, well, are you sure you're Maya? Okay, I'm going to first force you to log in again 
And if I'm really not sure, it's particularly unusual, I'm going to also force you to use a second factor authentication. And that's how we control access to, to applications differentially. So the idea being perimeters around each individual application mm -hmm. and the, you know, let's say the height of the wall changes based on who I am and where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. And this Beyond Corp is not just specifically to your corporate email, right? In the Every application at Google. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen that where it's like, yeah. oh, we haven't seen you log into Gmail in this computer in this kind of browser. So I get the... Right. So um, user Gmail has something that looks very similar to that, but we do it for every application internally. So our bug management system, our code repos, everything has the same requirements when it comes to accessing your data. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we talked about the first common security decision, which is defining this perimeter. The second one that I saw is whether to re-architect applications. Can yeah. You, yeah, can you explain this? For sure. So the study that McKinsey was doing was, if you're going to move to the cloud, which we have a lot of large, you know, Fortune 500 type companies doing, what's the best way for you to uh, get the best bang for your buck when it comes to security controls? And the main question they're asking there is, if you already have a security model that works, right, if you're already using some application firewall on-prem, do you just bring the same thing to the cloud? Or do you actually use the cloud provider's controls or use cloud-specific controls? And it, often, in order for you to be able to do those things, you're going to need to actually change something in your application, right? Your application knew how to talk to this thing, but it doesn't know how to talk to that thing. It needs to have an environment variable from a different place, whatever it happens to be, right? And so that's, that's the question of, is it worth it to re-architect some application in order to move it to the cloud? Mm -hmm. From a security point of view, I should say. Sometimes you have to re-architect anyways. <laughs> I see. And one thing you mentioned is the cloud security controls. So I want to understand more what is the role of the cloud service providers in, in terms of security. Yeah, there's this idea of a shared responsibility model. So the idea is that the cloud provider should provide you with some security that you can't, things that you wouldn't be able to control as a user, and then should provide you with the controls and partners that a user can actually use to fine tune based on their needs. So what I mean by that is, for example, protecting hardware at Google is hardware, is Google's job, right? It's not your job to protect your hardware when you're buying servers in the cloud. You shouldn't even know that servers are there. That's the point of the cloud. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> But things like if you're writing an application on the cloud, it's your job to access uh, to control who has access to the application. It's not Google's job. Google's job is to give you the tools to manage that. So things like IAM, which is identity and access management. And then for users, things like Identity Aware Proxy, which is our version of Beyond Corp for your own applications, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So you need the tools to be able to do it yourself. What would be an example of IAM, you know, you can pick up an, any application that you want, for example, Gmail or, sure. or any other... Um, I'm writing a small web app. IAM lets me say, um, yes, you are indeed a developer on this application. You can you know, push new code, et cetera, versus um, someone else who I say, oh, you can only view the code that's already been pushed. It's, it's a very basic concept. It's things like creating, editing, deleting, viewing resources. Who has permissions to do those things? You associate a user to a role and that mm -hmm. role to a set of permissions. Yeah. Um, in security, this model is called role-based access control, RBAC, and it's how commonly any kind of authentication is done for most applications mm -hmm. nowadays. So are some examples of roles like the admin role? Or admin, the... owner, viewer, editor, and Kubernetes, things like cluster admin. So this person can go create new clusters but can't create a new project. That mm -hmm. type of thing. Okay. So you mentioned IAM and the role-based. Are there any other security controls, examples of security controls? Yeah. I mean, there's a huge variety of security controls. Identity is one of them. Encryption key management is another one that we get a lot of questions about. What are some of the questions sure, sure. that come up in that? People ask, can I manage my own encryption keys is typically the question that, that gets asked. Okay. Um, so Google has a key management service, which if that's what you want to do, you can manage your own keys. If you don't want to do it, 
Google manages them for you. Mm -hmm. We also have uh, audit logging. So all the actions I mentioned earlier, anytime you create, delete, modify data, we automatically log that for you so that you can go look at the actions that your developers are taking as part of your environment. And in case of an incident, see what happened. There are some logs that tell you what happened. It's another common security control. Mm -hmm. And how does the cloud service provider adapt to the needs of, you know, Customers, for example, Google has many different customers from small companies to big companies. Is there a process for that for considering requests? I, I don't know that there's a you know hard and fast process. Okay. I think at the end of the day, if you build for enterprises, you're probably going to cover everybody else's needs as well. They tend to be the most demanding when it comes to security. Yeah. The the fine balance I think we need to keep and everybody needs to keep is great to build for enterprise and give them all the the bells and whistles that they need, but you should still have a really simple default for the three-person company that doesn't understand security, right? They need to be able to just use your product without understanding anything about mm -hmm. security. Okay. And another thing that I read in this area is using CSP security controls, the cloud service provider controls, can lead to reduction of costs in a company. In what ways does it reduce costs? Is it because you're not employing somebody to, you know, implement role-based approaches or IEM or encryption? I think it's um, a combination of both CapEx and OpEx. So one of what you're describing is, sure, maybe I needed somebody to implement that system before on-premise or they built something very custom for my environment. Also, a lot of the stuff people are doing on-premise is buying a vendor tool to do it. If you're doing it in the cloud, a lot of that is just built into the platform and it's free. So you don't necessarily need to buy another tool in order to do something custom for your environment anymore. I see. Okay. I want to go back to talk a little bit about containers and security. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One question that I have is containers can talk to each other, right? Yep. In, are there security risks in this? What are some of those? For sure. So we're going to do a quick mapping internally. So a container is inside a pod. I'm talking about Kubernetes. Okay. Container is inside a pod. A pod is inside a node. A node is inside a cluster. And at Google, a cluster is inside a project. So container, I should say, a pod can talk to another pod using, okay. and by default in Kubernetes, if you don't do anything, every pod can talk to every other pod, which is kind of scary, right, from a security point of view. It makes a lot of sense if you're just deploying a new container and you're testing things out, but that's probably not what you're going to want to do in a corporate environment. So you can apply something called a network policy, which is a native functionality of Kubernetes, and restrict which pods can talk to which other pods. Mm -hmm. What are examples of pods that you would want to talk with each other and pods that you wouldn't want to talk with each other? I think it's very dependent on your environment and what mm -hmm. you're trying to get done. Yeah. So an application might be, for example, I've seen people do one application per cluster. So it might be as simple as like within my user data, whatever, let's say my user rewards application, I want the database to be able to talk to this thing, but I don't want that thing. I'm giving a terrible example. <laughs> Is it more about what we talked about earlier where you have user data and maybe those containers that manage user data shouldn't talk to you know, other types of containers that don't really handle user data? That's definitely a very good example. I would say in general, it's, it's just about if they don't need to talk to each other, then put the restriction in place so that if somebody does attack you in the future, they don't have more privileges than they need. That's uh, the idea of kind of least privilege. Only give things the permissions that they need to have. Mm -hmm. And in terms of logging and building a secure container and service, what is the role of this, of logging? Sure. So Kubernetes also has a concept of audit logging. And that logs calls that your cluster make. They're not on by default in Kubernetes because obviously Kubernetes is something you deploy yourself. There is a suggested policy that you could use. And they're written for you in Google Kubernetes Engine. I see. 
But I, w- I want to go back for a second to your question about pods and, and things talking to other pods. Yeah. So the pod-to-pod level, you can restrict using network policy. If you're talking about services, and we haven't really talked about services, but services are like a grouping of things. It could be a bunch of pods, a bunch of clusters, whatever it happens to be. If a service wants to talk to another service, the way that the new project, the new hotness, is Istio. Is what? Istio. I-S-T-I-O. Okay. And Istio is a way for you to restrict what things can talk to each other, automatically authenticate and encrypt that transmission, and also monitor network traffic between those services. Mm-hmm. So is Istio a way to set up the network policy? It is not. So that's where it gets confusing. Istio okay. is completely independent of Kubernetes. Istio is meant to focus on containers as services first, but could also let, for example, your container talk to your VM. Network policy just controls what happens inside your cluster. Istio controls what happens outside your cluster. Yeah. And what's an example of a network policy? A network policy would just say, this pod can talk to this pod, but not that pod. Okay. I see. Right. And we're talking about establishing a network policy and, you know, the fact that some containers should not talk to each other. So I'm curious, based on your experience... What are some examples of attacks and threats that can be seen to to systems that use containers? For sure. I think what we're seeing in the wild, so customers are often worried about container escapes. So the idea being what I was talking about earlier with the hypervisor and what that protects against. The idea being that somebody running in one container through the kernel escapes and goes into another container. It's a malicious process. What escapes? A malicious process, a bad actor. Okay. Somebody who's not supposed to be in your environment. Okay. Uh, They escape a container. They escape a container. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was what GVisor is helping protect against. Um, A container escape is what people are very, very scared about, right? A container escape is not something that I've seen in the wild. And I say in the wild, I mean like in production, in a real environment, right? It's something that people can do in test environments, and it's a great proof of concept, but not something we're seeing in the wild. What we are seeing in the wild is super boring <laughs> and is the exact same set of attacks that we have against virtual machines. So people are finding unsecured uh, you know, Kubernetes clusters, and they're not going, oh, I'm in Kubernetes, and let me try to escape this container for fun. They're going, mm-hmm. great, let me mine some cryptocurrency. Really? That's the main thing we're seeing right now? The I think mining? we're seeing a lot of cryptocurrency mining. We're seeing a lot of you know, standard attacks like credential theft, which means somebody's stealing like, uh, like an AWS IAM key or a GCP IAM key. We're seeing privilege escalation. So I'm in a container. Can I act as root? And can I do something bad or, or whatnot? Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say the threats that we're seeing are container specific. It's just kind of compute specific. Oh, I have, yeah. I have some resources I can use. Yeah. Or like you said, now more people are using containers. So those systems that are going to be compromised, well, they happen to use containers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I haven't done a show on cryptocurrency, but I was just curious why cryptocurrency mining is sort of right now the so end hot? goal. Not so hot, just the end goal of a, the attack. Oh. Why, why do they just want to piggyback on someone else's system? Yeah. Why not just spin one system of their own? Because it's so expensive. Okay. <laughs> I think if you were an attacker five or ten years ago, the quickest way for you to make money was to get credit card information or healthcare information or email information and sell that on the black market. Now, if you're an attacker, you don't even need to touch that stuff if you can just get access to compute resources and if you can start creating basically new money from nothing. And the benefit for you at the end of the day is that the you know if that particular thing is unprotected, either on the cloud provider or on-prem or you know people's fridges that are connected to the internet or mining cryptocurrency, all kinds really? of things. Really? Yeah. Wow. You get basically free money for, for you know, no hard work. And is this problem 
particularly solve with the help of this sandbox environment? Does that help? No, no not really. So a sandbox environment would prevent somebody who gets into one container and doing crypto mining to get into other containers, but it wouldn't stop someone from getting there in the first place. Okay. Is there a solution for this, for example, to prevent you know somebody just cryptocurrency mining? There isn't a be-all and end-all. I think it's generally kind of follow best practices, which is which is a little bit sad. That's um, true. Typically, it's, uh, people are going to use cloud resources to do it. So there's, I say, a famous Kubernetes hack. There's only been like one or two famous you know, Kubernetes what hacks. Is it? it was about two months ago now. Tesla was running Kubernetes on AWS. I believe they were running Kubernetes 1.7 which is uh, three releases ago now. And they had a Kubernetes dashboard, which was a feature of Kubernetes. It's a UI for you to be able to use Kubernetes. was enabled. They didn't put a password on the dashboard. And they put in the dashboard their AWS credentials. And so somebody found the dashboard, right? Something like Shodan. Shodan is how you find unsecured things on the web. And it's like Google for bad unsecured things. They found this dashboard. They found the AWS password. They went to AWS. They authenticated with that password. And they started mining cryptocurrency. Mm. Um, And this happens all the time. (laughs) Yeah, but it's something that sounds like could be easily avoided. It could totally be easily avoided. Yeah, but it's like you said, follow best practices, which is the same for setting your password through your email. Like they recommend all those things. This, but people still do one, two, three, four, five. I think there's a couple ways you could look for them if you think if you're going to go ahead. One is around preventing your IAM credentials from being out there on the web. There's a couple of open source tools that let you scan to see if your IAM credentials are in any in a you know, commits from your own company. Look at your, do, do a check on your GitHub commits before you commit something like that. And if you find your key committed in your own public GitHub repo, please go remove it and please go rotate your key. Yeah, and change the key. Yeah. The second one is around looking at your compute usage. If you're a big company, you're probably monitoring your usage on a pretty regular basis. If you suddenly see an application that you weren't expecting to change a lot, spike in compute, mm-hmm. maybe go see if somebody's doing some crypto mining in there. Mm-hmm. And the third, and this is usually too late at this point in time, is if you're monitoring your billing, right? You'll see suddenly your bill will go up a lot more than you expected. And you'll think, wait a second, what was happening over there that day? Yeah. And I'm sorry, your app didn't, you know, didn't get 20% more traffic. That's not what was happening. Yeah, that's what I'm also <laughs> thinking. Some people might be like, cool, we have more traffic yeah. now. We're growing. Maybe, but probably not. You have to do some <laughs> investigation about this. Okay. Well, we're almost out of time, but yeah. I wanted to, you know, ask you a few more things before we finish. What is the process of making ice cream? Oh, I see, I see that you've Googled me. <laughs> I Googled you. Uh, uh-oh. I can't explain it in quite as much technical detail Not as I can. Not quite as much detail, but, but sort of, oh, you need this type of machine. And, oh, sure. You know, um, this goes in here. And so basically, ice cream is just cream and sugar. Okay. And you probably want to pasteurize it. Okay. And then you're going to whip it very, you know, quickly while you're freezing it at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's basically what ice cream is. Okay. People, you can obviously add vanilla. People add egg yolks and that kind of thing. Those are not minimally required to make ice cream. Mm-hmm. Uh, all you need is cream, sugar, and cold. Mm-hmm. Some things that are worth considering if you're making your own ice cream at home is like you want to make sure you dissolve your ice cream, uh, your sorry, your sugar in the cream. You want to make maybe use a mix of cream and butter if you're really going for high fat content and like milk of the right consistency so you get something good. Mm-hmm. If you want to add add-ins, you're going to want to add, you know, chocolate chips or whatever. Okay. Once you've already churned the ice cream, these yeah. are all top tips. <laughs> yeah, nice. And I saw also You've researched ice cream headaches, is that? Yeah. Yeah, what have you found about that? Yeah, so I was uh, quite young and I was doing a science fair project on ice cream headaches. And what I found by giving my classmates at the time, let's say about two scoops of ice cream, 100 milliliters of ice cream to eat either really fast, 
which is putting eating all of the ice cream in less than 30 seconds, or slowly, which is eating all of the ice cream in at least two minutes. As people who ate ice cream fast were more likely to get ice cream headaches. So you know when you eat ice cream and like your your head hurts a little bit? Yeah, it If you does. eat it fast, that's probably, uh, well, not probably why, but that is a contributor to why you might have an ice cream headache. Okay, and you said you did this when you were in... in when I was in grade eight. In eighth grade. <laughs> that's fun. That's cool. Well, Maya, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Too.